0: fellow dog powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog powered sports. I know that we have listeners all over the world, but here in North America, it is getting toasty. And I am certainly hopeful that it's going to cool off here soon. Unfortunately, it's probably not too near in the future. But as we start looking for those cooler weathers, we do want to start planning for equipment and our fall and winter adventures. So, this week we have a super fun guest who's joining us for a two part series. Her name is Kayla Fratt. She's a professional dog trainer, she owns her own training company and does some really cool things with her dogs. She also used to be a competitive skier and has done ski drawing with her dog. So, we're going to dive into different equipment how to ski, what different considerations you need to make before hooking your dog up, and of course, a little bit of dog training and behavior. Before we jump into that, I do want to take a quick moment and thank some of our awesome listeners who have taken some time out of their day and routine to leave us a review. So this week, we want to thank Noof N.D. Great interviews. I love hearing from people who have been in the sport. It's very motivating to know that we all start somewhere and it's inspiring to think where it could lead. Love the training tips and the real life stories. Great blend of everything dog powered. I am so glad that you are enjoying it. I really appreciate you taking the time. It helps us connect with other dog lovers, dog-powered sports lovers, and people who want to check out all of the awesome adventures that we can go on with our dogs. So, Noof ND, thanks for taking the time, and you're going to be entered into our raffle. We're going to be holding a raffle up into the fall, and anybody who submits a five-star review for us will be entered in to get some positively dog-powered swag as a thank you. And if you can't wait till the end of the raffle to get your Positively Dog-powered swag, you can find us. We've got a shop over on Bonfire with tank tops, t-shirts, sweatshirts, and mugs, everything to fit your needs and get you guys all geared up before you hit the trails together. All proceeds from the sales do help support the podcast. So Not only can you support us and help us cover our costs, but you also get to look cool on the trail while doing it. You can find more information about our Bonfire merchandise store and our Patreon page if you connect with us over on Facebook and Instagram. I hope to see you there. And now, let's dive in. Let's start, Kayla, if you don't mind, introducing Mm -hmm. yourself for our guests and kind of giving them a little introduction to your education and kind of what you're doing right now in the dog world.
1: Yeah, excellent. So yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited yeah, to be absolutely. here. Um, my name is Kayla Frat, and I, I, gosh, I wear a lot of hats. I run Journey Dog Training, which is an online dog behavior advice website. Um, so as part of that, we've got a huge blog. We have two podcasts, and um, which is the Pandemic Puppy Podcast, and then the Canine Conservationist Podcast. Um, And we also do online training so we've got like courses as well as one on one training which we've been doing online only since actually I think 2017. Um, So before the pandemic. I also run Canine Conservationists, which is a conservation detection dog organization. Um, So that's, we train, our our tagline is that we train dogs to detect data. Um, But what it basically is, is very similar to like a bomb dog or a search and rescue dog, but instead of looking for bombs or missing people, my dogs are trained to look for things that have ecological importance. So things like an invasive plant or screening boats at a fishing tournament for an invasive mussel or finding wolverine scats so that scientists can do DNA analysis. So that's very cool and it's definitely kind of my my heart job right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I am owned by two border collies, a seven-year-old named Barley and a seven-month-old named Niffler. Um, They're both um, working detection dogs. They're both absolutely bonkers and I love them to death. Um, and then as far as education goes, I have a degree in ecology with kind of a, a specialty in animal behavior. Um, the school that I went to for undergrad didn't really have an animal behavior program, as most don't. Um, and it also didn't really, you didn't have a minor in psychology, and I didn't quite have enough time to do a double major in both bio and psych. Um, But I took like every class I could in the psych department that was interesting. So I took like cognition and learning theory and learning and adaptive behavior and uh, cognitive neuroethology, which was just the world's coolest class. Um, And then I worked at a, and I I started dog training in college, basically doing like loose leash walking sort of work. I was technically hired by a lot of my early clients as a dog walker um, and kind of learned how to train by playing around with their dogs. and then got a couple great mentorships, was really lucky with a bunch of that, and then got hired at one of the largest animal shelters in the country as a behavior technician. So if you're not in the dog world, you would probably have just called me a behaviorist. But people in the dog world know that a behaviorist is like a specific title that I'm not allowed to claim. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, so my job there was just working with mostly fearful and aggressive dogs and cats. I actually spent about half my time there with working with cats as well, um, trying to get them ready for adoption and make sure that they were safe to adopt out into the community. Mm -hmm. Um, and during that time I earned um, the Certified Dog Behavior Consultant um, title with the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants and I've been kind of running journey dog training ever since then. Um, I left the shelter in 2018 to just kind of do journey dog training and freelance writing full-time.
0: I think your background is so cool and you you and I have talked before Mm -hmm. about your conservation work and I, I think that it gives you a really unique perspective to dogs, to nature. You know, I know that you're a Mm -hmm. big adventure person. You love getting outside and being active with your dogs. And part of the dog-powered sport world obviously includes us getting out and enjoying trails. Mm -hmm. And I think that you have an even more unique uh, edge to it because not only do you understand the dog training, not only do you love nature and outdoors, but you also have that conservation component to it where you're getting out and enjoying the trails, but making sure that you're also doing it respectfully and not Mm -hmm. disturbing any of the wildlife or nature that might be there.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's super duper important to me. And, you know, part of it is selfish as far as access. Um, I I currently live in Missoula, Montana, and it's got some of the best I don't even want to say this, but like, because I don't want everyone to move there. <laughs> but it's got <laughs> protect the home. <laughs> I know, but it seriously has like the best off-leash opportunities I've ever seen, and I've lived in a lot of places. Um, but um, with that, as Missoula is growing and more people are using it, um, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like it is one of those places. And as many of our trail systems are, we're kind of always at risk of losing that access um with too many uh too many dog owners that just don't don't know or don't care Mm -hmm. or you know haven't done the work um yeah and uh you know so that's something that selfishly is really important to me but then also on kind of the conservation side of things like you know it's it's always been very very important to me to know that like my dogs and i are good trail stewards
0: yeah, yeah, I try to do that as well and try to educate people on that because it is so important. If, and if we don't take care of the trails around us, we're going to lose access to them and we're not going to be able exactly. to use them. So, you know, even if we're just doing it from a purely selfish standpoint, mm-hmm. we have to take care of it in order to be able to use it. And that means respecting rules and regulations around us. There are not a lot of places where we can legally let our dogs off leash. And I'm a big stickler on that because, again, if we're breaking those rules and regulations, we could be harming wildlife, harming plants mm-hmm. in the area, and ruining it for everyone else, right? We have to make sure yeah. that at the end of the day, we're we're being respectful of the trails and everything that was there before us and, um, you know, the other people that are using the trail systems.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I It's one of my, especially in a place like Missoula, where we do have so many amazing trail options that are off-leash friendly. Um, it always drives me a little nuts when people do go ahead and break leash law elsewhere, where it's like, you could have gone three miles down the road to a different trailhead that would have let you go right. off leash and no one would be mad at you. Like, why do you have to do it here? Um, yeah. and I will say like, I mean, I have personally totally, like I got yelled at, um, in December, I think, um, my first hike with Niffler, where I had just totally not seen a sign that the dogs aren't allowed off leash there from December until May and just hadn't seen it. Um, yeah you know, so that happens too. um, Cause there are a lot off leash there in the summer. And I just hadn't realized that there was like a seasonal closure, but mm-hmm. anyway. yeah. So
0: you uh, are quite a skier. Yes. So, and
1: that's a little bit of what we're
0: going to be talking about today is your experience with skiing and your experience with ski joring. How did yeah. you get
1: started in skiing? Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is such a, I, I never get to talk about this side of my personality. And it's so exciting because <laughs> cross country skiing is like, I I have literally never voluntarily lived somewhere where I could not cross country ski. Um, it is my like my first love. Like I, yeah, I've loved cross country skiing for a lot longer than I've loved dogs. Um, so and, and that's saying something based on your career path. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. I don't love cross-country skiing as much as I love dogs, maybe, but that might just be because it's seasonal. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, yeah. Um, so I grew up in northern Wisconsin um, on the shores of Lake Superior, and little did I know growing up there, I think I grew up in like maybe the best place in the country for cross-country skiing. Um, so my elementary school had an after-school program in the winter that was a cross-country skiing program um where like my parents would just get to pick me up at five thirty instead of three thirty, and I would have already been cross-country skiing for a couple hours they gave us hot chocolate and cookies um, that sounds amazing oh my god it was so great so yeah like literally I mean I have pictures one of my favorite pictures of me as a toddler is me I'm like maybe two standing on a pair of cross-country skis like looking down at my feet like maybe kind of confused a little unsure what's happening <laughs> um but yes yeah, so I've been skiing like almost literally as soon as I could walk. Um, my parents both cross-country ski and Telmark ski. Um, I was born in Colorado and then raised in Wisconsin. So it all kind of makes sense. And then when I was in <clears throat> about sixth grade, fifth or sixth grade, so I'd always learned classic skiing. Um, that's what I'd been doing and you know, was was skiing pretty regularly, quite a bit through elementary school um, and then i taught myself how to skate ski on my classic skis and was showing the um there's a very cool like so by my, my area had um Kamski ski is what it was called which was the shawamigan area nordic ski club ski and um i showed one of the coaches that i had taught myself to skate ski um because i knew that she was the coach of the middle school team and i was like super super stoked on middle school And she was like, oh, my gosh, you're doing so well, I'm like the complete wrong equipment. We have to get you on the team. Um, So I learned to skate ski and then I I raced competitively from there on out. I I still continue to race now post-college. I'm not, you know, like super competitive on a national level or anything like that. But like I do continue to race now. Um, When I went off to college, I went to Colorado College, which is in Colorado Springs, and they did not have a Nordic ski team when I went there, and I almost didn't go there because of that. I was trying to decide between there and Middlebury, which does have a Nordic team, but their Nordic team, I believe, is D1, and I was not good enough for their Nordic team.
0: So I was like, ah, do I go to
1: the place where, like, I'm going to be on the club team, but at least, like, there is a team, or do I go to my college choice school, which doesn't have a Nordic team, and I decided to go with Colorado College, and literally, like, I don't know. Like a week into school, they have this. They have this great thing um, for freshmen and just like other students where every single club in the school kind of comes out and does like an expo. So you can mm-hmm. go around and sign up for like inner tube water polo or uh, yeah. you know pottery or the rugby team or tryouts for the ultimate frisbee team or you know whatever it is and like everything from pretty traditional things like lacrosse and soccer up to like inner tube water polo. Um, and I managed to by the time that that rolled around, which I think was like 10 days into the school year of my freshman year, have filed the paperwork to start a Nordic <laughs> ski team. And, That's uh, amazing. Was, like, cabling at my freshman, um, I can't <laughs> remember what it's called. I keep wanting to call it a culture fair, but it so it definitely wasn't that. You're like, um, I'm new
0: to this school, but we're gonna do this and you guys we're should do it. Me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I ran I ran that team all four years that I was at CC. By the time I was a senior, we had like sent kids to nationals and had like a That's crew amazing. of like 20 competitive racers. Now there are kids who choose to go to CC who maybe wouldn't have otherwise because there's a Nordic team there. You know, so kids That's were amazing. In the position I was in. Um so yeah, yeah, like oh my god, I love cross-country skiing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty amazing.
0: I can't I can't even imagine going in freshman year and not knowing anything and just being like nope so instead of just being sad and upset that there's no team i'm just going to make a team and we're going to make it happen i was a really ballsy 18 year old (laughs) yeah yeah that's impressive that's really impressive so dogs obviously came into your life a little bit later when did you transition from skiing to ski joring how did that process work for you
1: Basically, I got barley um, and I actually I tr- I planned getting barley around my ski schedule um, Yeah. where I so every year, the big race that I continue to do now that I've graduated college and I'm no longer competing like every weekend um, is the American Biner, which is in northern Wisconsin. And it's a 50 K race and it's spectacular. It's so fun. Um, but uh, so I basically I was like, I know I want a dog. I was working at the shelter at the time and I know I don't want to bring a dog home in the middle of the training season. Um, so I got Barley on March 10th, which was about two weeks after, um, the, the big race and had him for, you know, nine months. And then it came to be ski season again. And I was like, all right, buddy, here we go. You know, we'd been, we'd been doing a lot of, a fair bit of cane across. So I Mm -hmm. got him and within about two months of getting him, I signed up for my first ever marathon because I was just running with him so much that I was like, I might as well have a goal, (laughs) Um, and not just, not just run for, for the sake of my dog, but also mm-hmm. like have additional motivation for us. Um, so we'd been doing a lot of that and we'd learned a lot of our trail cues actually on foot while running. So he knew to stop, he knew a slow down, he knew a speed up, he knew a right, a left, a straight, um, and I taught all of him that on foot. And then, um, yeah, I got him a, Roughwear rough wear harness and we headed up to Breckenridge. Um, I was teaching lessons at Breckenridge, um, three days a week and working at the shelter four days a week. So I was just like commuting up to Breckenridge and sleeping there, mm-hmm. um, and uh then um yeah just started skiing with him i think we entered our first race that that year um the burka biner has the Barka biner <laughs> um so the burka biner is the 50k skiing race and the Barka biner is or the Barka um is a three or five k ski joring race and we entered okay. that um did well had a ton of fun did that again the next year and got second um and uh, that's been the only ski joring race that we've actually done. But most of the time when I take him out, as long as we're going for a short distance, I've got him hooked up to ski jor If we're going longer, I'll just have him off leash if that's allowed and just have mm-hmm. him run next to me just so that like I can get my full workout in without <laughs> killing my dog. Because right. um, he doesn't actually uh, he I don't actually want him pulling me if we're going to be doing like 15 or 20 K.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's a lot on him. Now, when you were going for your first race, Mm -hmm. you obviously had race experience personally. So I'm sure you had a little bit of the, you know, packing and mental management Mm -hmm. and all of that down. But as you know, as a dog trainer and dog pro, bringing dogs to events is a very different experience. Definitely. How did you prepare for that? Or was it something where you kind of went and then learned, you know, what to do better the second time? Yes. (laughs) Uh,
1: Both. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I knew quite a bit about, you know, my own race prep needs. Um, I have my own little kind of little rituals. The biggest thing that I tend to do the night before races is I take a good shower and then I braid my hair. Um, so that it's, like, up and it's back, and that's, like, a huge part of, kind of, like, my pre-race meditation plan. Um, I always lay out all of my gear. I usually lay it out as if it were on a mannequin so that I can see that I've got, like, the right socks, and I've got my favorite race socks, and I've got my, you know, my, like, comfy wicking underwear, and, (laughs) you know, my heart rate monitor is fully charged, and all those things, you know, I've got, like, the, you know, is it a serious race where I've got the black headband or is it like a fun race where I've got like a tutu involved? Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I always do that. You know, I make sure as best as I can. Barley gets a good rest the the days before that. So which is hard for him um, because I know that I'm tapering and I know that I'm taking a break. Um, he doesn't know that. So he doesn't know why he's not getting as much exercise as normal for like three or five days leading up to the race. Um, then on race day itself, um, you know, for both of us, it's thinking about nutrition and making sure that we're eating at an opportune time. If the race is early enough in the morning, I might just not feed barley until after the race for him in particular, um, just Mm -hmm. because I know when I can eat in relation to a race and still have my stomach feel okay, but I'm not quite sure for him exactly how long he needs because I can't ask him if his stomach was cramping. Um, and he's a very high drive, enthusiastic border collie. So I, I just don't trust that I would see it or know if if he was hurting, like he has to be hurting pretty badly for me to be able to pick up on it because he's just not gonna tell me about it.
0: Especially in a race environment like that, when arousal levels are higher and they're more excited, they're more likely to kind of ignore their own discomfort, be stoic and then, you know, we don't want something to happen.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So then on the day of that very first race, We So Barley's done a ton of stuff out in public at this point. He'd been a demo dog for a bunch of different um, training situations. He'd been to colleges. He'd been to um, quite a few bars and coffee shops at that point. I don't think we had done many of our like really, really big demos that we've done since where he's like at conferences or um, museums where he's doing like back to back to back demos. So he has done a lot of that since. But anyway, he hadn't done that yet. And we got to the starting line, and I was shocked how amped he was. Um, You know, because it was like nine months into owning him, and I just hadn't seen him. And he, you know, I was lucky. I switched him over from his neck collar to his harness just because I was like, Mm -hmm. he is clearly incapable of walking nicely at this point. And he was just barking his head off, um, like kind of spinning, and then turning and barking at me, and then like turning and barking at the other dogs. And just like, just so excited. I was like, you don't even know what's happening, but like, you're, you're, you're jazzed. Um, and it's funny talking to, I also do, I dabble a little bit in agility and I'm kind of comparing what I will tolerate from my dog as far as arousal levels in ski joring versus agility is really interesting because I would have been very concerned to see that level of arousal from him in agility, but in ski joring, mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, I- I- I want him to run fast and broadly yeah. run straight. Like uh, the the course there is pretty well marked. So I'm not worried about him running off course. As long as he's not so amped that he is going to get either of us hurt when trying to pass another dog team, right. I actually don't mind if he's kind of out of his mind. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, and, um, you know, since then, I've really learned I just don't take him anywhere near the start line until we are, like, ready to go. I actually almost missed my start for the second race, the one that we got second in, because I was, like, trying to keep us away from the start line for a little bit too long. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing I've learned with Barley is that I need someone to help me hold him. Um I like once I've got my skis on and especially once I've got my poles strapped on, I like, I'm a very good skier. And I still just like, I need someone to help me kind of hold him at the start line and then release him when it's time to go. Um, Mm -hmm. Because he is, he's a maniac. He loves it so much. Um, Yeah. It just really wants to go top speed. So yeah, those are kind of, again, like I, I knew my race plan and I knew, you know, some things about nutrition and tapering barley on his own, but but then as far as actually figuring out like our start line routine and those sorts of things, um, that mm-hmm. took a little bit of practice because I was just not prepared for the level of enthusiasm I was seeing from him.
0: Yeah. So I do want to dive into arousal in just a minute. Yeah. But before before we get there, you mentioned something is interesting on the human knowing that something's coming up. And so we need to taper our exercise and rest in order to be able to perform but our dogs don't know that. Mm-hmm. And so for a dog that is really used to a certain amount of exercise or a certain amount of stimulation, that tapering process could be frustrating for them. They oh, might right. have a lot of extra energy built up where we can see that come out in inappropriate ways. Mm-hmm. So how did you manage him at home? Did yeah. you increase mm-hmm. enrichment? Did you increase training? Did you, How did you help him you know, be sane during that time and not have mm-hmm. a bunch of frustration?
1: Yeah. So part of it for me is like a long-term expectation setting thing with my guys. Um, I I do have, you know, kind of extremely high drive dogs. That's, that's definitely what I select for a really, really athletic bonkers dogs that I absolutely yeah. love. Um, but part of it for me is also like I it is really important for me to set the expectations for them that like there are days where we just don't get exercise and we just learn to deal with that from a really young age. So, like my mm-hmm. my seven month old has already been learning that lesson, um, you know, basically since it was three months old, the day I brought him home. Right. So it's not super unusual for my dogs to um have to go three days without like a good run or really, really good exercise, and that's important to me. We do. You know, generally, we still get walks um, and we still get kind of the basics. But I generally, yeah, I do up enrichment at those times as much as I can. Um, We may do a lot of like relaxation protocol work or with Barley now, I will also do, um, and this was true for our second race as well, which was in 2019, because obviously this race did not happen in 2020. Or no, Mm -hmm. it did happen in 2020. It didn't happen in 2021 because it was like the last big event that I went to before everything shut down with COVID. At that point, we thought this was just saying in Wuhan. Um, yeah. <laughs> what a nice thought. Yeah. Um, and um, so I will also do quite a bit of like stretching or like kind of basic fitness. You know, kind of similar to like how I will switch over to doing like kind of light two mile jogs instead of like a six mile tempo run or something he'll obviously be joining me on any of those training runs or training hikes or whatever it is. And then I might also switch over to some yoga and he's also switching over to like earning some meals by like standing on his hind legs, or we do a lot of stretching where like I pull his, I put one hand on his hip, and then I pull his nose with a treat lure around to his opposite hip to kind of stretch those side bodies. He's got some hip pain that's been ongoing, and we're under the care of a veterinarian for, so we do quite a, some physical therapy for that. So he is still getting plenty of enrichment as far as mm-hmm. that goes, um, but it is definitely it's a double-edged sword. You know, it, for for me, it's really important that my dogs are capable of not having intensive exercise every single day. Um, And then also like, you know, doing what you can to meet their needs when. When they need it
0: yeah i think that's a balance and i think that it's something that a lot of people struggle with and when we look mm-hmm. at our dog powered sports people think about building drive building endurance upping mileage you know creating these huge athletes but at the end of the day that's not sustainable for them or for us to do that mm-hmm. all day every day all year long yeah. you know in the summer we're going to have periods where exercise is decreased we're going to have days where we're too busy at work and they're not going to be able to get mm-hmm. out and go for 10 mm-hmm. miles And at the end of the day, you know, that's not necessarily safe. They need rest days too. So I think that that's important for everybody to be building with their dogs as early as possible, you know, letting them learn exercises like settle on a mat, finding Mm -hmm. other ways to reinforce calm behavior, offering them enrichment and choose to help the dogs learn that being stationary is also okay Mm
1: -hmm. so that
0: we can keep them in this sport as long as possible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's really, and this is where coming at it from an athlete myself helps a lot, where I mm-hmm. understand, you know, not just needing rest days, but also hard weeks and easy weeks and hard months and easy months, you know. And one of the things that I love about dog powered sports is because most of my training as an athlete involves bringing my dog with me, he kind of necessarily will get those same ebbs and flows in his training in a way that I think in other sports, like if you were doing agility, um, it would be easier to forget that because you're not also training yourself and you're not also following a training plan and you don't feel how sore you are after that 15 mile run. And one of the things I do still personally struggle with that I'm getting better at um, is remembering that, like, oh, it's a rest day for both of us. We both ran 15 miles yesterday. Yeah. Just because Barley is looking at me with a ball in his mouth doesn't mean I should go take him out. Like, he doesn't know this, but he needs a rest day too because we're running six miles tomorrow. right? Um, and, um, you know, again, so I think that's a really cool advantage in dog-powered sports is if you are following a human training plan for yourself, so if you're training for a 5K ski jour or a canicross event or whatever – follow your training plan for that and broadly you could follow the same training plan for your dog as long as you're still hitting some of their you know their stabilizer muscles and some of those other things and that should help get your dog the right amount of rest again yeah. both on the the macro and micro levels of training
0: Yeah. I think that's so important. I, we, you mentioned this already about our dogs being so stoic and about them not showing signs of discomfort and some dogs, especially those high drive dogs will go, go, go. But Mm -hmm. as the human, we have to make those decisions and understand that it might not be the best thing for them to do all the time. So I love that of, you know, whatever I'm doing, they're doing. And if I'm working on, you know, core dog is working on their core that day Mm -hmm. and if i'm doing a rest day the dogs are also doing a rest day even if they're looking at you like hey what's going on Mm -hmm. what are we doing you know and on those rest days i might have to do a little more reinforcement for relaxation and kind of help them through that day Mm -hmm. but making sure that you're sticking to that plan for their well-being as well
1: yeah yeah absolutely and you know and then on that note as well which is i think this is somewhat related you know, thinking through again, like I'm always so aware as an athlete of what's happening in my body and what, you know, there are so many things that can be tweaky even, and I'm only 27. Like I I don't, I know that my body is going to hurt me more in the future. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's so many things that may feel tweaky or be a little bit painful in my body that don't cause limping or changes in activity or behavior. So, you know, with particularly now that Barley is, he's seven and a half. Um, you know, really thinking about giving him good massages almost every night. That's part of our kind of bedtime routine is we do some brushing and some massages. He's a very fluffy dog. So the brushing was already part of our, yeah. you know, at least a couple nights a week routine. I'm going to be honest. It's not every night. Um And yeah. then also trying to remember to like stretch his toes and like stretch out his hamstrings and like just feel his body and because it takes so much, um, and I'm sure you've talked to people who know a lot more about this than I do, but it takes so much familiarity with his body to notice if I'm getting a little bit more resistant on that right back knee than I would otherwise. Because again, like, it's probably not painful enough for him to limp
0: or mm-hmm. painful
1: enough for him to guard it or yelp if I try to do anything. So I really have to kind of know how his body is supposed to feel And, you know, I think for us as humans, it's key to start with being in tune with our own bodies and recognizing how our own bodies can feel different from day to day, and then starting to transfer that knowledge over to our dogs. Um, Unless you're already someone who's really into a lot of like physical therapy and those sorts of things, it's hard hard to get your head around until you've really started understanding it with your own body.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And those small changes are huge. You know, it might be, I, I, uh. I basically had a knee replacement on my left knee. Ouch. And it's never, it's never been the same. You know, so for me, I have to know what my baseline is on a normal day. Right. And even for me, that's going to be a little bit imbalanced. But I need to know if it's different from mm-hmm. that baseline because mm-hmm. that lets me know that something more serious could be going on, lets me know I might need to do a little more, um, you know, a little more rest, a little more stretching. Maybe I need a little more time with some anti- Inflammatories, right? Mm -hmm. But having that baseline, no matter what that baseline is, lets you know when something small might be off. And that's important for us as human athletes and for our dogs. And we don't Mm -hmm. know that for our dogs because they can't tell us. Mm -hmm. So we have to put our hands on them daily and and know so that if we are feeling something small, that's different, that's not resolving, you know, Mm -hmm. that's a really good indicator that we might want to go get it checked out by a rehab professional because the sooner we pick up on those things,
1: the less likely
0: the dog is to injure themselves.
1: Totally, and I know, like I can tell a little bit about Barley's. So his knee or his—it's his hip. He's been diagnosed with an iliopsoas injury. He went to another vet who, um who said it's probably not. So he's been to an orthopedist and a canine rehab vet, um, as well as several other vets, just kind of trying to figure out what it is. And you know, basically. What we did is I started keeping a Google sheet of every day, the amount of activity he had, whether or not I saw the limping, what the limping came up after. Because what it was presenting as is he was kind of picking up his leg and not putting weight on it for, like, three steps. And then Mm -hmm. he would kind of stretch a little bit and then be totally fine and, like, want to go for a 10-mile run. And what we finally figured out, we still don't have a definitive diagnosis for what's going on. He's had x-rays. He's had imaging He's had multiple really, really good vets have their hands on him, and we just don't quite know. Um, It's probably just – I mean, like, I have a very similar thing in my own right hip, actually, where um, we just don't know what's going on with it. It's just painful sometimes. Um, So for me, what I've finally figured out is that through all of that journaling, the injuries were presenting – or the injury was presenting. If we went for a a good workout, came home – gave him a Kong and he laid down still in a long place and got stiff. Yep. So like now we've incorporated a lot more of cooldowns. He does not get Kongs after workouts anymore because they're just too stationary for him. So yeah, more of the cooldowns, more of the rub downs. And then I'm always keeping an eye as well on like after he poops, does he kick with both of his hind legs or does he only kick, do that kickstand thing with the, the left leg? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when he stretches in the morning, does he stretch both in downward dog and upward dog. Um, if he stretches an upward dog, does he like stretch out both of his hind feet and uh, like really actually curl those toes under? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. And just like, I'm always paying attention to that. And it's nice now that I have two dogs and I can really compare like the super flexible bouncy puppy And how deep he goes into his stretches to the older dog. And I can really kind of see those differences. And I'm just always paying attention to that as far as, like, "Mm, does Barley need to go on this full workout today? Maybe I'll only bring him on the first three miles. Maybe Mm -hmm. he doesn't go at all. Um, Or, yeah, like, let's bring him for the full eight. Like, yeah, yeah, just kind of always thinking through all of that.
0: Yeah. And that observation is so important when living with dogs when working with dogs when training dogs we have to be very good at observing and picking up on small things can take some time you know to pick up on those small changes and one of those things Mm -hmm. that we need to be observant about when we're training and when we're at trials or races is that change of behavior that we'll see from them you Mm -hmm. know what our dogs might behave like on the trail during training is likely going to be quite different than in a race or competition setting mm-hmm. because of the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, and you even mentioned with Barley that he had done a bunch of public outing and demo you know activities which would help him learn to focus, help him learn to control himself in new environments and still that environment was pretty arousing for him. Mm-hmm. So, what were some? You mentioned some of the change of behavior that you saw from him—barking, mm-hmm. spinning. Um, when you are working in agility, where they mm-hmm. have to really use that brain and be able mm-hmm. to respond, versus a straight trail, right? That you're can crossing, where it's going to be easier for them to follow. They're not going to have to respond to a lot of directions our choice to pull back and let them relax versus our choice to let them go might be pretty different. Totally. Talk to us a little bit about what you have seen in arousal and kind of how you have managed it in the different mm-hmm. environments.
1: Yeah. So yeah. in, in Cana and ski touring, and I've done a couple cane across races, but I'm not as passionate about it. Um, Again, for both of them, for me it's more about management and kind of keeping him away from that start line environment until I'm ready for him to go. Um and I know my dog and I know that so far we have not found a level he has not hit a level of arousal in that environment where he is incapable of following the cues I need him to follow. So, quite frankly, I don't worry about it much. That is probably not the case for a lot of dogs. So, mm-hmm. In agility, um, and if I had a dog where I knew that they were likely to just lose those cues, whether it's because they're not as—Barley is a pretty absurdly responsive dog, as many Border Collies are, um, but not all. Um, And we have a really, really excellent working relationship. I've put tons of foundation work into him, so you know, part of it's him, and part of it's me, and part of it's our training. But if I had a dog, and you know, who knows, Niffler might turn out to be this dog. where that's not the case, um, or again, in agility, I utilize a lot of Sarah Streming's, um arousal testing from her worked up class. Um, mm-hmm. So that basically involves, as we're approaching a stimulating environment, so whether that's the agility ring or the start line, um, starting out just asking the dog if they can eat. And if the dog is incapable of eating in that in that environment then you know that you need to kind of go back and sarah generally recommends doing a lot of like kind of walking and letting the dog sniff and circling and like letting them move mm-hmm. in proximity to um two things and then kind of asking them again like hey can you eat now um i know this is tricky for particularly if you have listeners who like have huskies where it's kind of like yeah they, they like barely eat at home um that definitely yeah. makes this a lot harder but you know figuring out asking very, very easy in theory questions and seeing if they can get the answer. And then if they can get the answer there. So, you know, you ask your dog, Hey, can you eat? And they're like, yeah, I can eat. And they're, and they're eating relatively normally. So they're not super sharky or super hesitant with that eating. Then I might start asking, okay, cool. Can you, can you sit when I ask you to sit? Can you down when I ask you to down? Like these really basic things and continuing to test that. So again, in agility, I want my dog's answer to all of those to be like, yes. It, cause if my dog can't eat or can't sit when I ask him to sit, there's no way he's going to hit the weave poles right. Yeah. Um, and then from there going up, I generally will then start seeing if I can get the dog to start asking me to work um, and asking me, you know, like, I'll stop cueing behavior and see if the dog starts offering behavior. Um, and that to me really says that the dog has enough focus on me and what's going on and the reinforcers I have that they're able to work in that environment.
0: hmm Yeah. So when you are in the race environment, Mm -hmm. Um, arousal can certainly negatively impact a dog's behavior. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that the dog is aggressive, but when arousal level increases, you can have more issues when dogs are in close proximity to one another. So how do you manage, how did you learn how to manage your start line with increased arousal?
1: Yeah. So that again, definitely goes back to having a holder. Um, A lot of the races I've been to do have just volunteer holders who will help you Manage your dog. Um, I've also used um, my ex-boyfriend um, or my dad um, as a holder and, you know, just keeping an eye on where the other dogs are, how all the other dogs are looking as well. You know, they're like, I'll kind of like, especially if you're looking at something where you're like, I need to get up to the start line right now because my number is about to come up because they do staggered starts at most of these events. Um, and I have to walk in between these two dogs um you know red red dog and green dog we won't Mm -hmm. pick on any breeds or anything (laughs) but um you know red dog and green dog and red dog is kind of sitting looking at their owner they've got soft eyes and they're just kind of like this is cool what are we doing and green dog is like spinning and barking and like punching their owner in the gut or biting at their skis or whatever, like, if I have to walk in between those two dogs, I'm going to err on the side of walking closer to Red Dog mm-hmm. um, and doing whatever I can there and just keeping eye on my own dog as well. Barley has never been the sort of dog who takes, quote-unquote, cheap shots at other dogs or gets snarky. He would, like, certainly with, like, these high levels of arousal, he would be more likely to reciprocate in a fight if another right. dog were to snark at him. Like, I absolutely know that about him, and I'm very careful with him about that. But he is so far knock on wood, been in a lot of these environments and never been the dog to start anything. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm just as careful as I can about moving us through that um that really chaotic start line environment as safely as we possibly can. Um, I also often so like my OmniJor ski drawing belt, I keep Citronella Spray in it. So um even at a race environment there's a very good chance I have citronella spray on me if I were to ever need it. I've never needed it and really, really hope I never need it in a race environment um yeah but i have needed it when running before um just Mm -hmm. on training runs um so it's just it's a nice kind of thing to know that i have if like the worst thing were to happen and we were to have a fight break out um at a race and even if my dog's not involved um but as someone with as much dog savvy as i have kind of being ready Mm -hmm. to like jump in and help all the skiers who just thought that a dog race would be fun to deal with the dogs who like you know maybe no there might be no one at at a given race who actually has any skill in breaking up a dog fight yeah. Yeah, again, absolutely. Like, that's like, you know, Worst scenario. Happens, yeah. um, but I'm sure yeah. it does, you know, because we're dealing yeah. with just really, really highly aroused dogs um, in, in a relatively uncontrolled environment. There aren't a lot of other sports where your dog is so likely to come in complete close contact with other dogs. You know, it's about as you know, like, yeah, like, you wouldn't see this in dock diving or agility or obedience or, I mean, maybe in obedience, it could happen. But, like, the actual, like, having to pass other dogs at, and you don't have lanes, it's uh-huh. it's it's intense for, yeah. for the dogs. For yeah. Sure. So one of the things
0: that I have come across, um, you know, my husband and I ski tour, and when we are on vacation and looking for trails to go to, a lot of the trails that we find are in more Uh, wildlife wilderness areas Mm -hmm. where they will allow dogs because lots of, lots of groomed trails, um, not all, but a lot will not allow dogs on all of the Mm -hmm. trails or even maybe just some of them. And we end up encountering quite a bit of people with off-leash dogs, which Mm -hmm. is pretty common for people who are engaging in dog powered sports to come across, right? Like we're going to come across off-leash dogs at some point. And I think that how we handle the off-leash dogs varies dramatically depending on our dog's temperament, depending totally. on what we are observing in the body language of the other dog approaching. For our dogs that do really get highly aroused and excited in our dog-powered sports, we have to be careful about the interactions that they're having totally. because mm-hmm. because it can definitely impact them, even if they are, you know, quote, social dogs and dogs it that generally good. get along well with other dogs. We also carry citronella spray with us when we go out. And it's, it's that safety backup for me, you -hmm. know, just in case something were to happen again, knock on wood, we've never had to use it ourselves either, but how do you, if you are out with your dogs and let's say your barley is connected to you on the trail versus Mm -hmm. off leash, what is your kind of plan of action when you see another dog approaching that might be off leash?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest thing is I'm looking at that other dog and kind of seeing how they're, um, you know, how they seem interested in interacting with us. If that dog seems like it's definitely going to make a beeline for us and really try to interact with us, I will potentially just pull Barley's, like, emergency release and just let him off leash, um, which does, he'll still be dragging the toe line in the setup that I have, um, but at least then he's off leash and can kind of move freely and I'm not going to get tangled in them. Um, But in most cases, what I have seen is that the other, we're moving fast enough um, in most cases um, that the other dog might kind of be like, ooh, what's that? And then like we're already kind of gone by the time they're interested in us. So at that point I, I will just give Barley his on-by cue which is kind of like a, a flying leave it. Um, honestly, mm-hmm. I think most people will just say leave it. Um, yeah. And as long as their dog seems to understand that well, that, um, that'll work just fine for a lot of dogs. Um, and that's something I'm still working on with Niffler. One of the things I've noticed, Barley is not I don't I don't quite know he's very he's social and savvy with other dogs he's civil with other dogs but he's not friendly if that makes sense mm-hmm. like he doesn't want to go say hi necessarily he's not. Right. Like, oh boy another dog oh my gosh I'm so excited he's kind of like oh hey how's it going like yeah how's your day Just All right, smile and go. wave oh, and then yeah, yeah see ya <laughs> yeah. yeah he's very much so got like a like a seeing uh seeing like your, your cousin's friend at the grocery store sort of vibe where he's like, Oh, Hey, (laughs) all right. Bye. Um, And um, so with him, that works really, really well. With Niffler, Niffler is much, much more dog social um, and really like wants to go say hi to other dogs. So for him, he's still very much so learning how to do that on by. And for him, I may have to modify my approach because he might just not be as good at that. And one of the things that I've also seen as well is most dogs will kind of see Barley's body language of like his tail is down. His ears are back. He's running like he's, he's yeah. not really looking at them. He's not pausing. His tail's not on or wagging at them most other dogs kind of see that body language and they're like okay cool dude um I guess we won't come say come hang out yeah but you know Niffler even if he's still running he often will do this thing where he's kind of like running and wagging his tail and like grinning at them out of the corner of his eye all at the same time and that like solicitation definitely brings more dogs over um Mm -hmm. and we have to deal with that a little bit differently so again in those cases I'm probably cueing him an on by um at this point Niffler's only doing like a mile or two Mm -hmm. Um, and he's hooked to Barley (laughs) so in a lot of cases I'm kind of having Barley like physically haul Niffler out of there and continue teaching him Yeah, you know I mean like for a lot of all of these dog encounters it's just like I focus on what I can control Mm -hmm. and within reason I can control my own dogs obviously I'm not actually in full control of them no matter what I tell um, myself Um, and and I try to be smart about that interaction Um, I will say in a lot of cases where if I'm on a trail that's super off-leash dog friendly where I know I'm going to be seeing a lot of other off-leash dogs I will just have my guys off-leash as well and they can practice pulling in other situations Mm -hmm. I just honestly try not to put them in that situation too much we do again I'm so lucky in Missoula and similarly in Colorado um I can be picky about like okay I'm going to take them to this groomed trail where there don't tend to be a lot of other dogs um off leash, and we'll do our our joring training there. Versus when we're in these other situations, I'll just have them off leash and running with me, so that they can interact with those other dogs freely. They're still getting fitness um, and yeah. practicing their cues.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that even if you don't have a ton of trails offering variety, we can always make smart decisions about which trails are best for which training. You know, and even here, mm-hmm. closer to Atlanta, closer to the city, not a lot of off leash legal areas, but. I definitely know the parks where people do break the rules often and so I just avoid those if I'm doing a certain type of training or out with a totally. certain dog that I know won't be able to handle it. So I think that too that comes down to us making not only good decisions for our training plan but also good decisions for our dogs because not all dogs are going to be okay with being rushed up on and if I know that my dog's not like that then I just have to you know keep searching for those parks mm-hmm. that might be a little quieter, might be a little further out of the way, that will give us that safe training environment.
1: Totally. Or even, you know, like one of the, the big trails that I spent a lot of time out this past winter in Missoula is we have a groomed golf course. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, Saturday at 4 p.m. is not a good time to be doing my drawing training there. Like yeah. I might bring my dogs, maybe. Honestly, I'd probably just leave them that day. <laughs> like, but yeah. if I'm if I'm doing a headlight training ski at 7 p.m. and like the only other people on the trail at that point are other people who are training for races. He's like, why would you be out there for fun at 7 p.m. in January? Yeah. <laughs> um, those are the you know, that's when I'll bring the dogs and hook them up. Um, yeah. and you know, then maybe at five PM on a Monday where like there's still a little bit of light, you know, because it's Montana, so it's dark at like four forty-five in the winter. <laughs> um <laughs> I might bring them and have them off leash. So like also just thinking about what that trail usage is like. And, you know, sometimes I'm wrong and it's just like, oh, turns out there's like a 4-H social here today. Um, Yeah, yeah, I can always like unclip the dogs or or leave them in the car. Niffler in particular um, is kind of scared of kids. Um, mm-hmm. so if I get to the trailhead and I realize like, oh my gosh, it is so full. And they're like, clearly is a birthday party happening or something, like I might just leave Niffler in the car, um, and bring barley because that's the other thing, like particularly in ski drawing training, like I am not ready to be in dog trainer mode. I have treats in my, in my bag, but like I'm wearing gloves. It's in a zippered pocket. I'm wearing poles. Like, yeah, I am not going to be a very good dog trainer in any way, shape or form while I'm trying to ski. So it is just not the time to try to deal with. Anything as far as kids or dogs or any of those sorts of things like I will only put my dogs in those situations As much as I possibly can because you know stuff obviously happens. Yeah When I already have worked on it separately Elsewhere because it's just like it's not going to happen while I'm skiing the only tool that you really have while you're skiing Realistically in most cases is your voice Mm -hmm. And your leash Yeah you know, which just just doesn't set us up for success, particularly as positive reinforcement trainers. You know, your best yeah. bet is kind of <laughs> kind of getting your dog to listen to you, maybe body blocking with the other dog and like controlling your dog with your leash. But it, you know, it's yeah. not a great situation if uh, if your dog is not equipped to handle it, and it's yeah. even scarier I... if you're bike drawing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's yes. like the main reason I haven't dabbled in bike drawing too much yet, because I'm so scared of road rash.
0: We're gonna get you there. <laughs> <laughs> i I think though that that's a really important thing to bring up because at the end of the day whenever we're working with our dogs it's always about giving them the best chance of success Mm -hmm. and oftentimes that can mean a change of plans if we get to go to a trail and that environment is not what we were expecting you know Mm -hmm. we In that circumstance with kids and a bunch of distractions, like sure, I could say, you know what? I drove an hour and a half to get here. We're just gonna go do the thing. But then you have to look at potential aftermath of that. What is the dog rehearsing? What behavior is getting stronger? And if the dog hasn't been set up with prior training sessions to be prepared to handle that, then chances are they're not gonna be rehearsing the behaviors that I want them to be. I'm gonna be frustrated, they're building you know, a behavioral repertoire of things that I don't want, Mm -hmm. you know, and that doesn't get us closer to our success. So when you are at a trailhead and you make a decision like that, how do you then say, okay, I need to work on X, Y, and Z. And how do I pull that out of this environment and get the dog ready to handle Mm -hmm. it when I can actually be a good trainer for them?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we'll use the example of passing other dogs, because um, I think that's a really common one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically with that, I mean, it's so nice to be able to do both cane across and ski jarring because yeah. I can be a decent trainer when I'm doing cane across within reason. As long as I know, I mean, that I'm going out and this is like a a dog training run, not a physical training mm-hmm. run. <laughs> um, Correct. Correct. Because yeah, I do have to decide ahead of time, which it's going to be to make sure I have enough treats and that I'm in the right headspace. Because if I'm trying to go out for my like weekly tempo run and then I end up trying to train my dog, I'm going to be grouchy. Right. Um, so in that situation, I will go, I will intentionally go to trails where, um, and ideally actually like more of like a city river path. I feel like so many cities have these nice river paths where you're going to see a lot of distractions mm-hmm. it's going to be busy they're not a great place for bike drawing that's again yeah. part of the that's another part of the reason i haven't done a lot of bike drawing yet is because 90 percent of my biking is on these like really busy city river paths where i'm just like Ooh, yeah. this is this <laughs> Too is college much. level college yeah. level bike drawing not ready um and i will go and we will we'll practice i mean if the dog can't politely pass another dog while we're walking when i ask them to they certainly can't do it running and they certainly certainly can't do it skiing mm-hmm. that might not be entirely true because at speed, some dogs actually are better able to focus, but that is the barometer and the rule that I use again, even if yep. it's not necessarily true, because um, I don't like barley. Actually, is anyway. I don't need to like counter, <laughs> counter- myself too much, but that's kind of the metric I use. So if yeah. the dog can pass other dogs politely while we're walking, and there, you know, I might be reinforcing them um, at my side, or I might be reinforcing them with toss treats ahead of them to keep their focus ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Um, And the nice thing while we're walking or running is, uh, especially on these big city river paths, a lot of times we can step off. So we might practice passing a dog who's 20 feet to our left first before we do 15 feet, 10 feet, 5 feet. Can we pass a dog who's only 3 feet away from us? obviously as then we're also keeping a close eye on those dogs and making sure that we're not picking random dogs that we're passing who are going to make our lives harder than necessary. Um, So if we've got right. a dog who is already displaying reactive behavior or really straining towards us or anything like that, I'm going to add in some extra distance to make sure my dog is successful there. And again, we're just using a lot of heavy food reinforcement to keep the dog's focus either on me or ahead as we're practicing that mm-hmm. on-by sort of thing. And then we start doing it at speed. So when we're actually yep. jogging. Um, yeah. And then again, we try to get to the point where we can do it jogging without food at proximity mm-hmm. before we start doing it on skis because you have so much less lateral flexibility on skis where you can't get 20 feet off the side of the trail in most cases. Right. And again, you're not going to be able to do it with food in most cases. So until you can do it at like a five foot distance while running without food, you probably don't want to test it out too much on skis.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that that oftentimes for people... We can, and, and even as trainers, right, this is hard for us too. It takes practice and it takes mindfulness to take something like passing another dog at a high speed and to break it down into lots of little pieces mm-hmm. and to figure out how we can help our dog be successful each tiny baby step along the way and reinforce it to get yeah. to that end result of the dog being potentially, you know, 10 feet in front of us running and Mm -hmm. passing that distraction. And so, you know, we need to make sure that we're pulling that behavior out and looking at Mm -hmm. what do I need my dog to do? I need my dog to look away. I need my dog to disengage from the distraction and then figuring out little ways that we can help Mm -hmm. the dog be successful. So I do a lot of repetitions too. You know, if I know that the dog has trouble with other dogs, well, okay, where can they be successful? Maybe it's not with other animals yet, Maybe it's with a toy on the ground. I was or just going to say that. On yeah, the ground. yeah I, You know, we have to find something that they'll go, huh, what's that? Okay, whatever, and mm-hmm. pass it. Because when they make that decision, we can capture that and reinforce them for it. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going to help the dog start to figure out. And then each time they're successful, we can just change the situation, change the environment, change the distraction just a little bit mm-hmm. so that they keep getting those successful passes of something and then eventually building up to
1: whatever that higher level distraction might
0: be for Totally.
1: Them. And there are so many good exercises in agility as well for building that forward focus. Uh-huh. You know, I might actually put a plate of food out in front of the dog or um a favorite toy and then tell them to get it as they run past something else that's similarly distracting to have them practice uh-huh. that. Um and in theory, I maybe I'm going to try this with Niffler. This is not how I taught Barley, but in theory, <laughs> you could then teach the dog that on by, um, is your leave it cue for that plate of food or, you know, they're one of their favorite people who's like doing jumping jacks or push ups or whatever, distracting on the sidelines. Um, and then continue, you know, uh, intermittently reinforcing that out on the trail where, you know, mm-hmm. I can't do like a, a super intensive training session when I'm out on the trail, but I could in theory, after I say on by, then go ahead and throw my dog a toy or, um, mm-hmm. I usually keep pretty big, um, gosh, the 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 company that I use treats for ski touring um just unfortunately went out of business but it was called (laughs) I'm (laughs) devastated it's called marsh dog and their treats were like the size of your thumb joint so they're really big and like you could handle them with with your gloves on pretty well and you could actually toss them out ahead of the dog um and Mm -hmm. that actually might be how I teach on by so it's less of a leave it and more of a like hey reinforcements appearing in front of you sort of cue yeah forward focus and like That would actually potentially build enthusiasm and get the dog to dig in and move forward really nicely. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking on the fly a little bit here, but kind of pulling in some of my knowledge from agility and everything. I might have to experiment with that with Niffler. That's what I do quite a bit with reinforcement.
0: I do it with either throwing food. If the dog is toy driven, you can throw a toy out in front of them so they get to Mm -hmm. chase it, right? And that enthusiasm to go chase that treat or that toy reinforcer out in front can encourage that forward motion even more, really- make them excited about passing that distraction. Um, And I think too, that's where we go back to that idea of, is this a training run or Mm -hmm. is this, you know, a fitness run? Because that's going to change dramatically what you do with Mm -hmm. the dog, you know, and, and those decisions that we're making on the trail. Cause if, if I know my dog needs more work with passing, I'm, my goal is for a shorter run Right, mm-hmm. where they can have a few successful passes, I can reinforce it. I'm not necessarily worried about, you know, getting my mileage in or getting, you know, my tempo run in. I'm really just focused on the behavior that the dog is doing and what I'm reinforcing in that circumstance.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's similar to loose leash walking in that way. Like when I'm teaching loose leash walking, I will usually have a harness that I use for the dog when we just need to go for our walk. I have a harness and like a 10 foot li- line or something. And then when we're actually going out and doing loose leash walking, I might use a four foot line and a neck collar mm-hmm. and we're only going out for five minutes. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I, mean, I, I, people are always not people always, but like my clients are often skeptical when I suggest that of how well the dogs actually do really transfer over those skills um, eventually to understanding that like, Oh yeah. Like if if I'm hooked up to a neck collar, I'm supposed to not be pulling. Um, and mm-hmm. especially for us in our sport, like I don't really want my dogs to never pull. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's not helpful, especially ski jogging Like with, with running with my dogs, I don't mind if they run at my side because I have free hands. I can kind of take up that slack in the leash and mm-hmm. make sure I don't trip on it. It's okay. Um, But ski jogging like I, I need my dog with the line out in front of yeah. me because otherwise one or both of us is going to get hurt. Yeah, um, like they're either on leash and they're pulling or they're off leash and then they're allowed to be wherever they want. But yeah, um, within reason, I mean, I have border collies, so they don't tend to be super underfoot dogs. Mm-hmm. They like their personal space as well. But, you know, if you've got a dog who uh, has less of a bubble, you might need a little bit more work <laughs> but yeah. on that, you know, then I say with border collies for a lot of these pulling sports is like they don't want to be touched. Um, They don't want to be right underfoot because they're so used, like genetically, they're made for responding to spatial pressure.
0: Right. right so if we do have a dog Mm -hmm. as you know as we move from structured kind of off-season training of distractions and then we are starting to get on the trail with our dog Mm -hmm. theoretically for a lot of people there comes a point where we are out on the trail doing the fitness work doing the pulling and we're maybe not quite where we need to be for our on by And so oftentimes people will become repetitive with the cue, thinking if they say it with enough desperation, surely their dog will understand, you know, (laughs) oh, mom really means it this time. I I should really do this. (laughs) You know, and I I think that that I think it's realistic for people to be in that circumstance Mm -hmm. where obviously we don't be repetitive with our cues. That's not what we want to do. My go-to in in that place would be to see a distraction coming up, to be honest with myself about where the dog is in their training plan and whether or not passing is realistic for them. And if not, moving off the trail. Yeah. Especially for dogs that are not okay being off-leash maybe some of our reactive dogs that are not okay with being off leash with other dogs, mm-hmm. um, or even in an area where the dogs aren't allowed to be off leash in that circumstance, right? The other dog approaching could still be on leash. What is your, if if the, you were in that situation on the mm-hmm. trail and on skis, because as you mentioned already, like skis are not the easiest thing to move over. It is challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. What would be your go-to in terms of how to manage that situation best?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the first things is making sure that you on skis, independent of the dog, are comfortable moving laterally. And that you actually have the know-how on skis to be able to do this comfortably and confidently without the dog first. So again, going back to that concept of breaking down behaviors, this time for you. um, Mm -hmm. Because I think particularly some of our listeners here may not be, like, I'm coming in with so much independent cross-country ski knowledge before I ever got hooked up to a dog where, like, we used to play soccer on skis on my high school ski team. Like I have a lot of agility on skis that a lot of people maybe don't have yet. So, you know, making sure you can do that physically, um, which is something that, again, we can focus on that because we can control that. So mm-hmm. we can we can have you practicing stepping star turns and even jumping. Like, can you jump 90 degrees from one side to the other on skis? Obviously you're not going to do that to avoid another dog. But yeah, building that sort of body control and confidence on your skis is really, really helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, practicing like stepping star turns are probably the best exercise for people on this. So that's just kind of, you know, if you're stepping with, you've got your two skis parallel, you step with your right foot a couple degrees out, then you step with your left, left foot to go parallel again, then but but into this little like asterisk and doing that in both sides. It's a really, really good exercise for learning how to step your turns, which is a much more effective way to step turns as a skier anyway, but also to move out of the way. So once you're confident that you can actually do that, or maybe if you're not confident and, you know, stuff happens and you mm-hmm. still just need to be able to deal with it, I will then take in line for my dog as much as I can um, and bring them in as close to me as possible. Um, and I will coax them over. I might not give them any specific cues, but I am talking happily to them and kind of keeping their engagement and seeing how how focused on me they are. And then we're moving off to the side as much as we need to, if at all possible, I may have, I may. Break out food at that point. I, in a lot of cases, you're just not going to have enough time um, yeah. there. But, you know, just, it, it, I mean, it's just a, like, oh, crap, like, here we go. We're moving out of the way as much as we can. Um, I might yeah. communicate with the other, um, if the other dog is on leash, I might just say, like, hey, we're going to move out of your way, have a good ski, and, like, make it really clear that I'm kind of, like, dismissing them. Um, if their dog mm-hmm. is off leash at that point, yelling, control your dog, or anything like that is unlikely to be helpful. Um, so I will then, at that point, switch over to Happy talking my dog, happy talking their dog, potentially body blocking, again, if I can. I mean, the tough thing on skis, um, even as someone who is really, really comfortable on skis, and I'm usually on skate skis, so I also have shorter, more agile skis than if you're listening to this and you're doing classic skiing. Right. Um, body blocking is still really hard on skis. I have used my poles before to kind of like Mm -hmm. hold a pole out towards another dog and I'm not trying to stab the dog. (laughs) Yeah. And I try to make it very clear in my body language that I'm not trying to stab the dog so that the owners don't freak out at me. Um, Right. (laughs) But um, I have used poles before to just kind of like body block. I guess it's Mm -hmm. not pole block the other dog. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh,
0: that was such a great conversation. I really enjoyed spending my time with Kayla talking about arousal and race prep and all of those pesky distractions on the trails, including off-leash dogs, because that causes a lot of stress for a lot of our dog-powered sports adventures. I hope that was helpful for you guys. If you're interested in ski joring, be sure to join us in two weeks for the next episode when Kayla and I finish this conversation talk a little bit more about skiing skills equipment and skills that your dog will need to have so that you can hit the trails this winter together as a team so until next time have fun chasing tails on the trails